Friends, to glory in the cross means to exult in the work of Christ for us. It is to make much of who God is and what He has done for sinners like us through His Son. And so as we continue to worship our Lord together, let's now behold His glory in His all-sufficient Word. This morning I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, as we meditate on the glory of the new covenant and the tremendous privilege and responsibility we have been given to be ministers of a new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Listen carefully now to these wonderful words of life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now help us see the glory of the gospel so that we would not lose heart as we pursue the obedience of faith. Fill our hearts with hope as we minister alongside one another and to one another and to a world that is perishing. And when Christ shall return, when Christ shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Oh, for that eternal glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> On February 9th, 2021, after traveling 306 million miles, the Emirates-Mars mission Hope Probe began its orbit of the Red Planet. This successful mission made the UAE the first country in the Arab world and the fifth globally to reach Mars. And that month, the Arab News uh, printed an article with the headline, Arab World Basks in the Glory of UAE Mars Mission Triumph. Glory. It's what every country pursues, especially when it comes to space exploration. And so when NASA sent out a congratulatory tweet to the UAE Mars Mission team, they quoted the Iraqi poet Al-Mutanabi, who said, If you venture in the pursuit of glory... Don't be satisfied with less than the stars. If you venture in the pursuit of glory, 
Don't be satisfied with less than the stars. This glory, of course, refers to the praise that comes from people for accomplishing such a task. Uh, in this case, going to the stars, orbiting Mars. But friends, this morning, I want to boldly and confidently proclaim to you that there is a glory that is far greater than the glory of created objects like the stars or even the praise received from men. And that is the glory of the one who made the stars, the one who made people in his image, who gave them mouths and minds. I'm talking about the glory of God. Friends, the glory of God is the greatness of his manifold perfections. The glory of God is his weightiness, that God is to be taken seriously. He's not to be trifled with. God is supremely glorious. And to know the one true God who created the heavens and the earth by the power of His Word, and to know Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus, is to experience something of His glory, His saving glory. There's an old hymn that speaks to this by describing our conversion as heaven coming down and glory filling our souls. Beloved, God is the one who is worthy of all praise. He is to be made much of by all His creation. But sadly, there are many in the Christian world who are deceived into thinking that God's glory is mainly about them. This sort of teaching is, is propagated by prosperity teachers and ministries that often speak about the pursuit of God's greater glory in their lives. You might have heard of some ministries also who are, that are named Greater Glory Ministries. And this is what they mean by that. One prosperity preacher, Joseph Prince, says, and I quote, Experiencing God's greater glory means that you will experience more of His favor, healing, protection, and supply that you have ever, than you have ever experienced before. When God's glory is seen upon you, there will be such a charisma and weightiness about you that unbelievers, even VIPs, will be drawn to you. So this is not about God being made much of, but you being made much of. This is about glorying in outward appearances, in health, in financial success, all the things that unbelievers would be impressed with. This is the sort of glory or greatness that the false apostles at Corinth were chasing after. You know, these men greatly valued and relied upon that which Corinthian society gloried in. Fine speech and charisma and status and power. You see, they knew what the Corinthians would be impressed with. And so they used letters of recommendation from important people to lend credibility to their ministries and they weaseled their way into the church. And what the Corinthians failed to see was that under all that impressiveness, these men were preaching another Jesus and leading them astray with another gospel. These men were Judaizers of a particular sort who believed in the continuing ministry of the Old Covenant. And they were probably insisting that in addition to following Jesus, it was necessary to observe the law of Moses. So if you remember, they were trying to discredit Paul and his apostolic authority. 
And one of the ways they went about doing that is by comparing his ministry to that of Moses. They were probably saying things like, how can this Paul say that now that Christ has come, that the glorious age of Moses and the old covenant law has come to an end? How can he say that? Does he not know that God gave his law to Moses and that his glory shone on his face? The law is immortal. It has undiminished glory. Righteousness is in the law. Righteousness comes by keeping the law. Look at this man, Paul, weak, suffering. Compare that with Moses and Sinai and its glory. How can anything supersede or be greater than the glory of the Mosaic law? Now, in response to these charges, Paul wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians, to, to steer the hearts of these church members back to the true gospel that he had preached. And the only thing that Paul wanted them to fix their eyes on was the glory of the cross. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the reason he wanted them to continually trust in the gospel was so that their faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see that in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 5. So what Paul basically does in 2 Corinthians is that he continues, like a good preacher, to expound the cross of Christ. He tells us that Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises and covenants in the Old Testament. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. Jesus is God's full and final revelation to us, and there is nothing beyond Him. Furthermore, true gospel ministry is characterized by suffering, by weakness, and not by worldly displays of power. And yet God always leads His people through suffering so that through their message and through their afflicted lives, He gets glory for Himself. God's people make much of God when He brings us to the end of ourselves in our afflictions so that we might rely on life-giving comfort. Beloved, that's how we experience God's greater glory when His power is made manifest in our weakness. You see, the word of the cross transforms our lives. This is what new covenant ministry looks like, says Paul. Jesus, in his death on the cross, inaugurated the new covenant. That very covenant that Jeremiah spoke of, when God, would, God said he would write his law uh, on our hearts by the Spirit. And it wouldn't be like that old covenant written on tablets of stone. And the Lord was doing that through Paul's preaching of the cross. Through his ministry, God was transforming the hearts of those who heard the gospel. The life-giving Spirit of God transformed the lives of these Corinthians, and that was living proof that the new covenant was now in effect. It is the new covenant that all the previous covenants anticipate or look forward to. And so what Paul is essentially arguing in this chapter is that his ministry is far superior to the ministry these false apostles had aligned themselves to. That is the ministry of the Old Covenant. God had made His true apostles sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter that kills, but of the Spirit who gives life. See, the law written externally on tablets of stone could not save us. 
But the Spirit who applies the gospel to our hearts transforms our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh and gives us new life, enabling us to obey the Lord. And the Spirit does this by uniting us to the very life of the risen Lord Jesus through faith. And so the law covenant had its place and purpose in redemptive history. But the jurisdiction of the law covenant ended when Jesus completed redemption for His people. Now remember, these false apostles were championing the glory of the old covenant. And in our passage this morning, Paul says, Yes, I agree that the old covenant had glory. But the new covenant has greater glory. And he goes on to explain why. He does this by making three contrasts between the old and the new covenant. And Paul does this to teach the Corinthians and us that ministry under the new covenant has greater glory. Beloved, as Christians, God has called us to a glorious gospel ministry. We have been called and commanded to proclaim the gospel to the world and through the word of the gospel, build up one another in the body. Why? So that God's glory may be put on display through the church. This is far greater than the ministry of the old covenant. So here's why. Here's why your ordinary ministry in the body of Christ and through the body of Christ far exceeds any other kind of earthly glory. Three reasons why your ministry far exceeds any other kind of earthly glory. Three reasons. Number one, the ministry of life has greater glory than the ministry of death. The ministry of life has greater glory than the ministry of death. Number two, the ministry of righteousness has greater glory than the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness has greater glory than the ministry of condemnation. And then finally, number three, the ministry of what is eternal has greater glory than what is temporary. Firstly, let's consider this. How the ministry of life has greater glory than the ministry of death. Paul begins by explaining that his ministry, the ministry of proclaiming Christ and Him crucified, is far more glorious or weighty than those who were proclaiming the Old Covenant. And Paul says, here's why. Because my ministry is a ministry of life and not of death. Look at verses 7 to 8. For if the ministry of death, carved in letters of, on stone, came with such glory. Now we know that Paul is talking about the Old Covenant, the giving of the law at Sinai. Because in verse 6, he speaks of the letter that kills. This is a reference to the letter of the law written on tablets of stone. Paul says that they were carved in letters of stone. Now, the use of the word ministry in the text ought to remind us that the law performed a service. It had a ministry. Well, what kind of ministry? A ministry of death. Now, this is in contrast to the ministry of the Spirit in verse 6, who gives life. Now, the law, according to Paul, in Romans 7, verse 12, Paul writes that the law is holy and righteous and good. Remember that God Himself gave the law. And Paul says that it came with such glory. 
You remember God descended upon Mount Sinai in such a way that there were visible manifestations of His glory, His presence. There was thunder and lightning and smoke and the whole mountain shook. People were not allowed to go near the mountain. Not even a, animals were allowed to go near the mountain or they, if they would touch it, they would die. And so people stood afar in fear and trembling. Uh, even Moses was terrified at that sight. In fact, people were so afraid that they begged, they pleaded with Moses not to let God speak with them directly or they would die. And they told Moses, you go speak to God. You go speak to Him. You listen to what He says. And then you come back and tell us what He said and we will listen to you. But don't, please, please don't let Him speak to us directly. Beloved, God's righteousness was revealed in the law. The Sinai covenant was given to Israel to show them what they were obliged to do as a redeemed people. They were to love their Redeemer and love one another in response to what God had done for them. And Jesus said that the law and the prophets could be summed up like this. Love God and love your fellow Israelite. So the law tells you what holy love looks like. It tells you what righteous love looks like. But despite a confident declaration by the Israelites that they would keep the law, they only went on to demonstrate by their sin that they did not have a heart that feared God or loved Him. You see, the law was given by God to show people their sin, to show people their spiritual deadness, their inability to keep it. And because of their sin, it served as a means of death to the lawbreaker covenant breakers were literally put to death under the law. God also said that covenant breakers would not live long in the land. The law brought God's curse upon them. So even so spiritually speaking, it also killed people. Paul says in Romans 4:15 that the law brings wrath. So you see, the law covenant was a, was a minister of death because of the spiritual inability, incapability of the people to keep it. But Paul doesn't just have the giving of the law at Sinai in mind. He's also thinking of another passage. He's thinking of Exodus 34, verses 29 to 30. Exodus 34, 29 to 30. You know, that was the passage that was read for us in our scripture reading this morning. Now we know that Moses barely made it down the mountain when he heard the noise of revelry in the camp. The people of Israel who said so confidently, yes, we'll, we'll keep all of God's words, were now worshiping an idol, a golden calf. And God threatened to destroy all the people, but Moses interceded and God mercifully spared them. He didn't destroy all of them, but there were consequences nevertheless. God sent a plague upon His people, and those who were directly involved in the rebellion were put to death, 3,000 of them. But because of Moses' intercession, God renewed His covenant, and God gave the law to Moses again. That's what Exodus 34 is all about. And when Moses came down the mountain, Exodus 34, 29 to 30, records that because he had been in the Lord's presence, because he had seen God's glory pass him by while he was protected in a cleft of a rock. Moses came down with his face shining. It was radiant. It was glowing. This man had been in God's presence. It was as though some of God's glory had rubbed off on him. 
And the Israelites were initially afraid to look at him, to fix their gaze on his face. And that's the passage that Paul has in mind. And so he says here in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 8, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that, this is the result, the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Isn't that interesting? Now that phrase in English, being brought to an end, simply means that that glory was fading. It was passing away. It was being brought to nothing. If that happened, think about what he's saying. The ministry of death came with such glory which faded. If that happened, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? See, Paul is arguing from the lesser to the greater. Now, the glory that was passing away was the glory, look at the text, it was the glory that was seen on Moses' face. If you keep reading Exodus 34, even though people were initially afraid, Moses calls them to himself, and then they are slowly able to look at his face, and when they can do that, he instructs them, and then after he finishes teaching them the Lord's commandments, then Moses puts a veil over his face. And then later on, when he goes into the tent of meeting to be in the Lord's presence, he would remove the veil, he would speak to the Lord, and then he would come out shining again, because he had been in, in, God's, in the presence of God. And then he would speak to the people again, and after doing that, after finishing his speech, he would cover his face. What a strange practice. And Paul tells us the reason why Moses did that. Paul tells us the reason why Moses put a veil. Look at verse 13. He put a veil over his face, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13. He put a veil over his face so that, that's the purpose, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The glory of the Old Covenant was fading, and Moses knew that. See, Paul is doing two things here. Number one, he's using the glory of Moses' face as a symbol of the glory of the Old Covenant. And he says that that was meant to teach us that the economy of the Old Covenant was temporary. It was fading away. And here's the second thing he's doing. He's teaching us that the fading glory of Moses' face was a sign to point us to something more permanent and eternal in the future. It was pointing us to greater glory. When Paul says, will not the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of life, have even more glory? We should ask the question, well, on whose face do we see this greater glory? We see glory on Moses' face, and you're telling us, Paul, that that, that glory is, is fading away. Now you're talking about greater glory. Well, whose face do we see it on? And the answer is only given to us later in chapter 4, verse 6. So go down to chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine, lots of shining in this passage, 
Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in whose face? In the face of Jesus Christ. Two faces. Moses' face, glory. Jesus' face, greater glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Hebrews 1.3 This is why John says, The Word became flesh, and we have seen His glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the Spirit ministers life to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the greater glory of the new covenant. The Spirit ministers life and not death. He applies the work of Jesus to our hearts. Remember that Paul's point in making this contrast is to say that his apostolic ministry, unlike the Judaizers, has greater glory because the Spirit was applying the blessings of the new covenant to the hearts of his hearers every time he preached the gospel of Jesus. If the ministry of death came with such glory, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? See, this is what the Old Covenant looked forward to, to a time when God said in Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Beloved, you and I can experience the greater glory of the new covenant because the risen Lord Jesus through the ministry of the apostolic word is bringing about by his spirit what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He is building his church and he's doing it through your ministry as a member of his body. Those one another commands matter. Beloved, your ministry here at Grace Church may not be impressive in the eyes of the world. It's certainly not glamorous. There's no thunder and lightning and smoke during our discipleship meetings. The earth doesn't tremble when we evangelize the lost. There's no bread falling from heaven. Right? No seas being split apart. But the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and inaugurated the new creation, beginning with your new birth. He dwells in you. He dwells in you and will manifest His glorious power as you speak the gospel to one another. The greater glory of the ministry of the Spirit is experienced when you hear the word preached, when you grow in your love for Jesus. You will experience the glory of the new covenant when you say no to sinful anger. Not because you have to, but because you want to. The Spirit is working in you. Because your heart affections have now been changed. And you love Jesus and you adore your Savior. And it grieves you so much to know that there are weeds of bitterness and hatred in your heart. Those very sins for which your Savior died. And all that happens when a brother or a sister, someone who the world knows nothing about takes the pain and time to sit you down with an open Bible and remind you of what Christ has done for you. That ministry bears the fruit not of death, but of life. You know, those things won't make headlines in the newspapers. But it is far more glorious than anything 
this world can achieve. What a privilege it is to see the glorious work of the Spirit when a brother hears the gospel and repents of his sin. What a joy it is to to see the life-giving work of the Spirit when, when a sister who is afflicted with pain and sorrow can find rest and comfort in her Savior, when she is able to say, all the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask besides? Can I doubt His tender mercies, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know that whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. How glorious is that? The world can't give you that. Praise God for the life-giving work of the Spirit in our midst. This is how we serve and minister to one another. Paul says in Romans 7 verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, under the old covenant, sinners could not have access into the presence of a holy God without being destroyed. Only the high priest could enter into God's presence, that too after making sacrifice for his sins and the sins of his people, and that too only once a year. Under the new covenant, brothers and sisters, God abides with you. He indwells you. Think about that. And somehow... You are not destroyed by His presence. He has saved you and brought you into the household of God. We are no longer enemies, but sons and daughters of the living God. We have all been made priests and have been called to serve in the power of God's Spirit. And that brings us to our second point. Why your ordinary ministry in the body of Christ far exceeds any other kind of earthly glory. Because, number two... The ministry of righteousness has greater glory than the ministry of condemnation. Look at verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. What does Paul mean when he calls the Mosaic law the ministry of condemnation? Well, to condemn someone means to pronounce or render a guilty verdict, and that's what the law did. The law is like a a mirror that shows us our sin. And just when you think your face is not too bad, not too filthy, at least not as filthy as that person's face, you know, the law kinds of zooms in on your face, and it shows you every blackhead, every pimple, every mole, every scar. It just shows you what's already there. So think of, think, think of the man who breaks the Eighth Commandment, the man who steals. Well, what does the law reveal about him when he looks in the mirror? Well, the law not only tells him that he is a thief, it also tells him that he stole because he coveted something. Sin number two. And he coveted that thing because he allowed that thing to rule his heart and he worshipped that thing as his God. Sin number three. Yet another sin. And on and on it goes. The law serves to increase the trespass. Friends, when you stand before the law of God, it will crush you and condemn you. Anyone who tries to keep the law will soon find out that they can't. 
Just like that rich young man in Mark chapter 10. You remember that rich young man? He came to Jesus and he claimed that he had kept all the commandments until Jesus pointed out that his heart loved his wealth more than he loved God. He was breaking the very first commandment. He couldn't even keep the first commandment to love God above all. James tells us in James 2 verse 10 that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, get this, you keep the whole law but you fail in one point has become guilty of breaking all of it. Imagine that. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. If you think you can keep the law and you're trusting in your ability to do that, Paul says you are under a curse. Any religion who thinks that, that thinks that is under a curse. For it is written, he says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And yet Paul says there was glory in that ministry. Don't forget that. He says there was glory in that ministry because it made much of God's holiness and justice. The goodness of God demands that he will condemn those who are not good. See, God is the standard by which he judges all men, not by your standards. This is why the testimony of the scriptures is that there is none righteous before God. No one does good, not even one. See, the law imprisoned the entire human race, every sinner, for this one gracious and glorious reason, so that we could be justified by faith in Jesus Christ, so that we could be declared righteous before a holy God, not on the basis of our righteousness gained by law-keeping, but on the basis of His, of Christ's righteousness. Galatians 3, 21-22 says this, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And friends, this is the gospel, the message of Christ and Him crucified that Paul had been preaching, that now, in the fullness of time, a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. A righteousness that the law and the prophets bore witness to. And what is that righteousness? Romans 3.22, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is the saving righteousness of God and it is given to those who believe. Friends, we are spiritually bankrupt before God. God Himself must do something for us or we're done for. And He has. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the message of how God saves the guilty and the condemned. Apart from Christ, every one of us stands condemned under the law and will suffer the eternal punishment of God's wrath in hell. But the good news of God is that He sent His Son, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And how did He do this? How did He redeem us? How does He free us from the law's captivity? How does He set us free from the law of sin and death? He inaugurated the new covenant in His blood. The sinless Son of God, the one true mediator between God and man, took on flesh, perfectly obeyed, and fulfilled the law's demands, and then He died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. He did this for all who would repent of their sins and believe in Him alone 
as their God and Savior. This is how God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't wink at sin. No, Jesus takes our sins and our punishment and He satisfied, satisfies the wrath of God by offering Himself as a substitute so that His righteousness, His perfect obedience can be credited to our account by faith. This is the gift of God that is given to believers in the gospel. This is how God declares guilty sinners to be not guilty. But that's just half the message. That makes it sound like you're standing before God with Jesus' perfect report card and you've got a get-out-of-hell-free card, but you still have that anti-God heart. You remain unchanged. But the good news of the gospel is not only did Jesus die for our sins, He rose from the dead to give us new life, to give us new hearts, changed hearts, transformed hearts. And His Spirit lives in those hearts. He's given us hearts to love Him, hearts that want to please Him, hearts that are indwelt with His Spirit, who now enables us to trust and obey Him. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that this message informs everything we do as Christians. This is the message that not only saves us, but makes us more like Jesus. This is more glorious than the ministry of condemnation. No matter who you are, or what you have done, no matter how bad you think you are, listen to me, there is no sin that you have committed that cannot be forgiven because of the glory of the cross. Friend, you do not have to hide away in shame. Come to the light of His saving glory, and He will make you clean. Come with empty hands to the cross. There is no work that you must add to His all-sufficient saving work. Repent of your sins. Lay down your burdens and trust in Him alone. He will embrace you with His love. He will make you His own. He will comfort you with His Spirit. And you can know God not as a fearsome judge, but as a loving Father. Come to Christ. Did the ministry of condemnation have glory? Of course it did. Paul's not denying that. What he's saying is that the glory of the new covenant far outstrips the glory of the old covenant. We know this because of the next verse. Look at verse 10. Indeed, in this case, comparing the ministry of condemnation with the ministry of righteousness, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because, here's the reason, of the glory that surpasses it. You know, the light of a torch or a flashlight has glory against the pitch blackness of the night. But when the sun comes up at noon, shining brightly, it far outstrips the light of that flashlight. As one theologian put it, the latter outglorified the former, thus deglorifying it. The brightness and permanence of the one has outpaled the other so that whatever glory it had is, in effect, no more. This is how the book of Hebrews speaks of the two covenants. Hebrews 8, verses 6 to 8. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better. 
since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. That makes sense, doesn't it? For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then in Hebrews 8.13 he says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. He makes it obsolete. Friends, think about Paul. Here is a man... The Apostle Paul, whose life is marked with suffering. In the world's eyes, his ministry looks pathetic compared to orbiting Mars. And yet the paradox of the new covenant is that the glory of the ministry of the gospel through Christians far surpasses not only Moses, but any earthly glory. Beloved, I want you to remember this when it feels like your ministry in the body is not amounting to much. When you are tempted to get discouraged or weary. Mothers, when the world tells you, why aren't you out there in the world making a mark for yourself instead of staying at home? Where's the glory in raising children and disciplining them and loving your husband and meeting with women and studying the scriptures and opening your home to unbelievers? When you hear those taunts, remember the glory of the new covenant. Brothers, remember where this ministry of righteousness is heading. As you labor week after week, denying yourself in order to counsel and to pray with and to disciple other brothers, as both of you grow up in Christ's likeness, remember that one day Christ will return. That's where this is heading. The one who inaugurated the new creation with our new births, the one who sanctifies by His Word through His Spirit, will return to glorify you. If you're dead, He will raise you from the dead. If you're alive, He will transform you and glorify you. He will complete His new covenant work and He will give you new resurrection bodies and you and I will step into a glorious new world, a heavenly country that has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it its light and its lamp is the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. That's what John tells us in Revelation 21, 23. Beloved, your ordinary ministry in this body and in this perishing world is so glorious because you and I are laboring for what is eternal. And that brings us to our final point. Number three, the ministry of what is eternal has greater glory than what is temporary. Look at verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Paul's logic is pretty simple, isn't it? The old covenant was temporary. It served a temporary purpose in redemptive history. Contrary to what the Judaizers were claiming about the law, Paul did not see the law as an everlasting principle, but a temporary arrangement. Now, in the book of Galatians, these Judaizers were insisting on circumcision. And Paul 
said to the Galatians, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You're so excited about cutting things off, let me tell you what will happen. You will cut yourself off from Christ if you put yourself under the law. Every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. Did you hear that? Every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. Why would you want to be enslaved and come under a curse and be condemned? Now, we don't know what these false apostles were, were doing at Corinth, what they were asking these believers to do. But one thing is clear. They were teaching that the law was still binding on the Corinthians in some way. In Romans 10.4, Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And here he calls the old covenant temporary. It was fading away. If something temporary came with such glory, wouldn't something that remains, something that is everlasting, something that is permanent, something that continues forever, have more glory? Paul says the age of the law, the old covenant is over. A new age has dawned, the age of the new creation, the age of the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that whatever happened to Israel in the Old Testament happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom, that's us, on whom the end of the ages has come. It's here. We are in the last days. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, get this, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a temporary trend that Christians have introduced into the marketplace of ideas. No, it is an eternal gospel that we proclaim according to Revelation 14 verse 6. Brothers, no matter how advanced this world may get, no matter what new philosophies and ideas may make its way into culture, let me say this, listen carefully, let me say this to put steel in your spine and joy and hope in your hearts. Your Christian faith and the fruit of your ministry in this body and through this body is going to outlast everything. Keep that in mind. Your Christian faith and the fruit of your ministry in this body and through this body is going to outlast everything. It will never become obsolete. How does the book of Hebrews end? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will. Beloved, your labors in this local church will produce fruit that will last for eternity. Those gospel conversations, these relationships that you have with one another, these investments that you make as you spend time and energy to love and to care and to speak the truth and to remind and to correct and to comfort and to counsel and to generously give this ministry has lasting and permanent glory. These relationships will be eternal. This harvest will last for all eternity. Friends, this is a glory that the world is blind to. It's blind to. Paul is going to make that case 
in the next few verses. Think about the signs of the new covenant. The initiatory sign of baptism and the fellowship sign of the Lord's Supper. Think about that. Where's the glory in water, bread, and wine? Really? Where's the glory in that? And yet we know the truths of the eternal gospel that these elements proclaim, don't we? No, they tell us the story of the glory that we have entered into, the glory that we proclaim, and the glory that we look forward to. Brothers and sisters, such is the confidence that we have through Jesus Christ toward God. Don't be satisfied with anything less than the pursuit of God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we confess that you are a God of eternal glory. We thank you, O Lord, that you have opened our eyes because of the gospel, that you have opened our eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would transform us by that same glory. Cause us to labor faithfully. Cause us to look outside of ourselves, to continually trust in the gospel, and to remember that this ministry that you have given to us has greater glory than anything that this world can perceive or afford. Fill us with hope. Fill us with boldness and courage and cause us to endure till the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.